And then we'll end it off uh, next week, but I'm really glad to be back here and to be with Newcom. Uh, really one of my favorite communities uh, in the city, so thank you so much to uh, Pastor Caitlin and, and Carlton for uh, asking me to, to be with you this summer. And I also want to just uh, let you all know, I just heard this morning, Carlton's not with us. He lost a cousin this week, so it's probably something for us to be praying for, uh, for him and his family as they're mourning and grieving. And so if you know Carlton, it uh, might be a great uh, chance to just reach out and let him know that you're thinking about him. And so he's been a good friend to many of us. So, um, but thank you for the beautiful worship this morning. And um, I just love the variety that you all have here for worship. I mean, last week it was very much like Thai tribute and like, you know, gospel music. And this week is much more folky. I love that. Um, so I'm waiting for when you guys start doing Bollywood music. That's going to be pretty cool for you to be with doing that level of uh, multicultural music, but uh, today we're continuing on uh, in our second week of a three-week uh, series on the mission statement of Newcom, and so I'm really honored to be able to kind of preach through this and take some passages that I think help to support the mission statement that your leaders crafted for you several years ago, if not even over uh, decades ago, or at least a decade. How old are you as a church? 17 years, something like that? And so I'm really excited to do that. Real quick, let's review the mission statement together one more time today. Um, and I think we have it up here. Um, it says, we seek to be a city within a city, an alternate Chicago that last week we talked about passionately loves Jesus Christ. And that was, in a sense, me talking about what it looks like to have an individual identity in Christ. Today we're going to talk about intentionally engaging in authentic authentic community, and this is really a corporate identity we have in Christ. And next week, we're going to take some time to look at what does it look like to be a community, to be a person who's a part of a community who radically uh, advances the cause of Jesus in Chicago, but also all over the world. So really excited to jump into that. Today, we're going to focus on what it means to be a um, uh, an authentic community, what it means to be a person engaging in that, but what it also means to develop or build a corporate culture where people live authentic lives uh, in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in a city like Chicago, one of the greatest apologetics you have for the faith that we share in the Bible and in the person of Jesus is an authentic community, one that's genuine, one that struggles, one that doesn't have everything figured out, but you're working, you're persevering through the difficulties and the challenges of this city, but also the challenges of interpersonal relationships, and you're modeling for other people that you can belong in a city like Chicago. That's a huge uh, apologetic that you can be providing for um, the gospel of Jesus Christ here. Today we're going to look at a passage in Philippians chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 and I love this um, book because it really is a book that's um, uh, an epistle that's written about uh, fellowship uh, on mission and the result of that is joy. When you're fellowshipping on mission, uh, God gives you great joy. So if you don't mind, I'm going to invite you to stand up with me and we're going to read Philippians chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 together and then we'll move forward. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. This is a church that he planted. This is the first European church, first church ever on European soil. Uh, the Apostle Paul planted this church himself and this is him 10 years later writing to this church. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel for the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that you, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for uh, this church that was planted. 
2,000 years ago and how it relates to us today. I pray that you would give us a spirit of openness uh, as your spirit engages us through this text. We give you our um, next few minutes uh, so that you would be glorified and our lives would be, our lives would be rich uh, through this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, these opening verses show us that the Philippians church was a very alive church and was a great place for spiritual growth and even global impact. Later on you see this. The secret to the success of the Philippian church wasn't found in their status as people. It wasn't found in their great missional strategy. Uh, the secret in the, the, the success of this church in Philippi was the quality. It was the quality of their relationships. People were just really good friends in this church. As founders, Paul and Timothy, they were good friends. They imparted this DNA of friendship uh, to this church. The leaders and the members were good friends. And scholars actually say that Paul chooses a form of writing in writing this epistle. It was called the uh, letter of friendship. This was an actual formal writing style. And Paul uses this writing style to write to this church that he planted 10 years prior to this letter because he enjoyed them so much. As a matter of fact, it's one of the only letters that Paul writes where he's not like yelling at people, he's not like going off on people, he's actually celebrating how awesome they are. Uh, he sounds very upbeat in this letter, but the reality is this, Paul's writing from the loneliness of a Roman prison at this point. He's very lonely actually. Uh, Paul was jailed and on trial in Rome for preaching the gospel, and it's hard to understand how isolated Paul was, but probably the best way to understand, you know, the, the heart behind this letter that he was writing is to think about the letter that um, um, MLK wrote when he was in, the, uh, in prison in, in, in Birmingham, and you think about where his heart might have been. You know, King was married, he had children, and he was surrounded by wonderful leaders and wonderful people, but the reality is that is, as you read about his life is King lived a very lonely life. Um, he, he was very, at, at moments, he was actually very depressed. There's a, a, a few biographies out there that talk about the loneliness that he endured. One of his greatest friends, Ralph Abernathy, talked about some of these things. And one of the ways that this was portrayed about his life was in the movie Selma. Have you guys seen Selma? Anybody? Um, and I, we don't know if this actually happened, but uh, some of his friends t uh, recorded, um, are, are on record that says that there were times when he would actually call Mahalia Jackson. And he would ask, he was just so low, and he would ask Mahalia to sing uh, to him. So there's a scene in the uh, movie Selma where he calls up Mahalia, and he's just carrying the weight of this movement, and he's just really, really uh, tired and lonely, and he just asked Mahalia Jackson to sing to him. And do you, you remember the song that she sings to him? Because precious Lord, I can't sing in the way she does. She actually, she, she holds that note for a long time. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me home, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. So she's singing this song to him. And I think that this is really kind of the heart in which Paul's writing this particular letter to the Philippians church. How did Paul uh, keep loneliness from stealing joy though? Because I don't think he was lying to the Philippians church in the midst of writing this joyful letter. I don't think he was just kind of putting them on. I think there was this tension between him being in a very lonely place, but him also being able to communicate to them joy. Uh, you and I, we really, we don't have to be a great leader in order to imagine the struggles of, and the anxieties of what it means to be uh, in a season of loneliness. All you have to do is really just live in a city like Chicago, right? Uh, and then that, you, you know how it feels to be lonely really quickly. Uh, there's a book called Happy City written by Charles Montgomery, who's a Canadian. By the way, if you're Canadian in here, happy Canada Day. Uh, I want to recognize that. I don't know if there are any Canadians here, but I want that, to recognize that about you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Charles Montgomery, I can say that because I planted a church in Toronto and lived there for several years. So, um, This is what Charles Montgomery writes. He says that a place's popularity can actually destroy the elements that contribute to happiness. The things that make a city great can actually destroy the things that actually make you happy. The more we flock to high-status cities for the good life, money, opportunity, novelty, the more crowded, expensive, polluted, and congested those places become. The result? Well, surveys show that rich, high-status states in the United States are among the least happy in the country. Agree? Disagree? I mean, you, you don't have to be in prison to, to really experience loneliness. Again, you just have to live in places like Chicago or, or other places. Um, to a student, loneliness feels a lot like uh, being trapped 
by the pressures of school and then far away from everything that's familiar, uh, to a new mom, which my wife is here. She's a new-er mom. Uh, we just had a baby uh, four weeks ago, but we also had four other babies 17 years ago. So, <laughs> uh, But to a new mom, for those of you, loneliness feels a lot like exhaustion, no margin for real social connection and time alone. To a single guy, loneliness often feels like boredom and your closest friends always flaking out on you. To marrieds, loneliness feels like living with a stranger, fighting and having no one to talk about it with. And to leaders, loneliness feels like having to make some very heavy decisions, uh, one after another, and no one really being able to process it with you. Because at the end of the day, loneliness just feels like the belief that you have to do things by yourself. You might not feel alone, especially for those of us who are men. I'm not gender stereotyping us, but for those of us who are men, uh, we, you, we can manage to get through life without any real involvement from anyone else. And it's hardest when you feel this way, but you know a lot of people. Like I know a lot of names and my tribe's 120 deep and I just know, but it's, it's more difficult when you're in that situation. And if you're in that season, uh, you really can't afford to stay in a season of loneliness. It's not wrong and it's not bad and it's not sinful to feel lonely, but it's also restrictive to the motivational places that you need to be in in order to accomplish God's purposes in your life. Uh, it, it isn't wrong to be lonely, but it will kill any of your motivation to want to make a difference. And so uh, you'll grow cynical about life. You begin to envy people when you look at their Instagram or whatever it is that you look at, and you coast and you become indifferent. But see, that wasn't Paul, and that wasn't the Philippian church. It wasn't where they were at, at least, this emotional space. Uh, they were actually at a very um, challenging, but also a very joyful uh, place in the life of their church. So what I want to do is I want to throw out a diagnostic question. This is just kind of a question to kind of get us thinking. Uh, but in light of Paul writing this letter on the 10-year anniversary or t around the 10-year mark of the founding of this church, I want to ask you a question. Um, who's coming to your 10-year anniversary? Now, I know not Newcom's 10-year, but 10 years from now, who's coming to your parties? Paul founded this church in 53 AD and writes this letter about 10 years after uh, words where he's in a Roman prison. He loved this church, and he's basically saying to them, we, we had a great run. Let's celebrate all these years of doing life together. So for you, 10 years from now, if you were to craft a letter, who does the invite go out to? Who are the 15, five, three people that you're writing, you're saying, hey, come celebrate this momentous occasion in my life, in our life together. Uh, who are those people that will be uh, in your lives 10 years from now? One of the most inspiring things that I've seen people do in the midst of seasons of struggle and especially huge adversity is that no matter their situation, uh, in a situations where other people typically would have tapped out or given up, I'll see people hold on to relationships in the midst and in the midst of tension and they're working through it. And as somebody who's pastored churches before, well, that's one of the most heroic things that you see in a church is when people hold on to relationships in the midst of tension, in the midst of leadership transition, in the midst when things just seem like they're getting ready to fall apart, but people cling to each other. This is every pastor's dream when the people in the church uh, love each other in this particular way. And so this is something I think is important for us, and I want to put it up here for you so that you can begin thinking about this, that God will give you joy and gratitude tomorrow if you invest in spiritual friendships today. That the joy and the gratitude and the excitement and the, the oh, I'm just living a great, fulfilling life, that, that life is given to you when you invest in spiritual friendship today. This morning, that's what I want to talk about is spiritual friendship. We phrased it authentic community, but I think it's one and the same. And more specifically, what Paul calls in this passage a partnership in the gospel or gospel partnership. We see this in verses 3 and 5. This is what Paul writes. He says, I thank my God in all, every time I think about you guys, I I'm, I'm thank him uh, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day. He says, from the first day, this church was founded. You guys have been partners in the gospel. You have been, you've been fantastic in this friendship, this circle of fellowship for the cause of Jesus. Paul was filled with joy in this season of loneliness in the prison because he knew the relationships he had started 10 years 
prior to this are continuing on until this day. The word partnership in the Greek is koinonia. You might have heard of this phrase before. Koinonia is typically translated fellowship, in this particular case, partnership. Uh, literally, it's what's shared in common, all right? So sometimes when you use the word fellowship, what do you think about? Well, I'm a good Baptist, so we think about food in my circle of friends. Uh, but it's more than just a potluck. It's a friendship formed in the Spirit by the Holy Spirit. It's a friendship formed in your spirit by the Holy Spirit. Friendship formed not in superficiality, hobbies, ethnicity, how close you live to each other, veganism, or how convenient it is to be one another's friends, or politics, or anything else. It's a spiritual connection that we have in Christ. We're different, but we're the same. Uh, in Southeast Asia, they sell these shirts. Any of you have ever traveled to Southeast Asia? It says, you know the t-shirt I'm talking about? Same, same, but different. You ever seen this issue? All right. So, same, same, but different. Yeah, this is Nike, but it's really not Nike. This is what they mean. Uh, this is Reebok, but it's really not Reebok. It's same, same, but different. Uh, but in Christ, we're same, same, but different. Uh, Wesley Hill, who, who wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship, uh, he has this to say about Christian friendship. He says, Christians think differently about friendship because their understanding of friendship is rooted not in rosy accounts of human perfectibility, but in a God who remains ever faithful to us and who never, no matter how egregious our failings, never writes us out of the story of divine love. We don't have anything else in common. We have this, that we know in Christ, God loves us in spite of our sin and our imperfection. Paul said, that's how we did life together. That's our gospel partnership from the beginning. And 10 years later, although I'm in prison, Paul, in a sense of saying, I'm filled to the brim with joy because I know that you invested in this koinonia. You invested in this fellowship. You invested in this spiritual uh, partnership in the gospel. Now, there are some of us in here, uh, if you had to admit, you're like, I'm really not lonely. Uh, I have a whole lot of friends. I have plenty of friends. You're, you're like the social butterflies. I, I'm, my Myers-Briggs says I'm INTJ. That I means that I'm introverted. It doesn't mean that I'm not social. It just means that uh, if you talk to me longer than 15 minutes, I'm probably going to be tired. And so, um, and I'm not a super high eye, but I'm just high enough that I like to get away from people. Ministry would be great if it didn't have to deal with people. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just joking. No, that's not how I really feel. Um, but some of us are social butterflies, so you're on the high end, you're, you're an E something. Uh, and you have friends uh, at the gym, at work, uh, neighbor friends, church friends, um, break the ten, uh, ten Commandment friends. You have all kinds of friends. Uh, but if you're ignoring and investing in spiritual friends, spiritual friendships, 10 years from now, there, there are three regrets that you might have. You might have these three regrets. First regret is, I regret having too many friendships and not having enough deep friendships. Secondly, I regret investing in some friendships that weren't actually good for me. And thirdly is vice versa. I regret not investing in friendships that could have been very good for me. So the time to start paying attention to spiritual friendships is actually today, like right now, making that decision, not waiting until better people come into your life, uh, not looking back at the high school yearbook friends who you haven't seen since graduation, but the ones that are in front of you today, right now. This is where you begin investing. Uh, here's a sobering reality for some of us, and I don't want to disappoint you, I don't want to depress you, but uh, the circle of friends that you have today uh, could be as good as it gets for you, all right? Some of you are like, oh. But if you keep waiting for the right people to come along who deserve all of you, okay, then 10 years could pass by and unlike Paul, you won't have any koinonia stories to tell. And, and adults, we don't have yearbooks anymore. We do have Facebook, but you don't have yearbooks to look back on memories. Uh, some keep away from deeper Christian friendship because we're waiting for the perfect friend, uh, whatever that myth is or whatever that looks like. Uh, some are, you know, really too cool for Christian friends and so we don't, we, we come to church, but we think Christians are a bit weird and that's probably true to certain levels. Um, 
but we tell ourselves that we're protecting ourselves from getting hurt or those kinds of things. And all these views are really warped views of spiritual friendship or friendship in general. Uh, with these views, uh, really, a friend always has to support you and never hurt you. And if that's your definition of a good friend, you're actually asking a person to do what only God can do in your life. To put that weight on somebody is actually to put unrealistic gospel expectations onto a person who really only God can fill that role in your life. So once you remove the, once you remove the, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the um, attribute of perfection, then a lot of people can be your friends. Uh, there's a lot, that opens up the door for a lot of people to be in your life. Uh, my wife, uh, who's here with me, um, we, we, we've always had a small group in our home. It's only been in the last year that we've been kind of getting adjusted to uh, Chicagoland that we haven't been able to host one. But we've always, for at least the last 12, 13 years, hosted small groups in our home. And we've, we've dealt with every single conflict that a, a small group can have uh, virtually. 99.9% .9 of issues out there I feel like we've dealt with. Uh, it's hard when the people you love are bent on throwing away their lives. And we've had many uh, seasons and instances when this was happening. As a matter of fact, there was a, a, a couple where they were having issues in their marriage, young couple, newly married, uh, no kids. So they were struggling. And it ended up being that uh, one, of the, one of the spouses had, um, you know, had an affair, had a relationship outside their relationship. And so we were, in, uh, before we even knew that, we were spending a lot of time counseling and trying to get to the bottom of why they were struggling so much. And so um, one of the spouses was really fully involved in the uh, reconciliation process while the other was very disconnected and very aloof. And so what ended, ended up happening was they ended up getting divorced and actually the, the situation got completely bizarre, like crazy Jerry Springer bizarre. Like it was really intense and, and uh, just, you know, police involved and all those kinds of things. And um, so uh, they, they get divorced and then years later we receive a letter from the spouse who had had um, the relationship um, that led to the dissol dissolving of the marriage. And the spouse wrote to us uh, apologizing. And I, I guess um, in the midst of the season, there was a come to Jesus kind of moment. And uh, this person wrote letters to a few other people and us included. And it was a three-page letter uh, asking for forgiveness and apologizing for not um, being present in the midst of us trying to reconcile their relationship. And what this person didn't realize was that, in a sense, by taking friendships too lightly, that there was a lot of collateral damage that uh, resulted of that. And so for, for us, we have to look 10 years into the future. It makes me think about, and I, I talk to my wife about this all the time, I'm not super awesome at being a friend to people, but I often, I often you know, I'll joke around with my wife and I'm trying to think, okay, you think this person would come to my funeral? You know, I don't know if you ever get to that, you ask silly questions like that. But look 10 years ahead and like, if you were having a party, like a life party, like who's coming to your anniversary? Who's coming to your party? God will give you joy and gratitude tomorrow if you invest in spiritual friendships today. <clears throat> I'm talking about a little bit of reason why. The why and the how. Why invest and how, do, how is it that you invest? Paul goes on to verse uh, six and seven and he says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Will bring it to completion. The, the good things that God's starting in you, I know that he's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. I hold you in my heart for you are all koinonia, community of fellowship with me of grace. And Paul is saying that I feel great about your ch you church because I'm excited because I know that God started something really real in you. And when Jesus returns, we'll see that every gift, every struggle, every heartache will turn out for good. And we, because we have partook in real community, we partook in quininias of grace. It's grace that God gives to you, the people that are around you today. God doesn't shape us necessarily by force. He shapes us through grace, and community is a grace from God. As a matter of fact, uh, God is in the midst of shaping you and I in a way that he couldn't do without koinonia. There are things about your future, your purpose, your destiny, your skill sets, your giftings in the world and in the church that couldn't be released, that couldn't be realized without gospel koinonia. As a matter of fact, there's times in which you experience suffering that you don't know why the suffering is happening to you 
And it's just that you need koinonia in order to help you persevere. And sometimes because koinonia is helping you persevere, you get to the point where you begin to realize, oh, now I understand why. But it's the koinonia, the fellowship, the community of grace that keeps you persevering until that time when God reveals it to you. I planted a uh, little church um, in uh, downtown Toronto, very similar to New Life, um, but we were in uh, downtown Toronto, and it was a church called Trinity Life Church, and I had a good friend of mine, and his name was uh, Minsu, who worked really hard uh, with our leadership team to provide safe places for people who had same-sex attraction in our church, and it was just very important for us. We actually planted uh, in what would be considered like Boys Town here um, in that part of Toronto. And during that time, um, we were reading uh, a lot and spending a lot of time with people and just building relationships. And I read Wesley Hill's book, Spiritual Friendship. And it, you know, if you don't know anything about Wesley Hill, he's a, a professor at Trinity, um, not here at Trinity, but Trinity in Pennsylvania, teaches systematic theology. And uh, I think Wesley Hill in this book, uh, I think he's on the right track. Uh, Wesley Hill is gay, uh, but he chooses to live a celibate lifestyle. And what he does in this book is he journeys through uh, how he makes sense of his sexual orientation uh, in light of his beliefs in traditional uh, biblical relationships. And he proposes that spiritual friendship is actually the context in which he and others are helping the church to rediscover the lost art of same-gender relationships. That there's something about his orientation and his experience that's actually enriching or challenging or being a prophetic voice to the church and helping us to discover again the richness and the importance and the vitality of same-gender relationships. How do men have deep, fulfilling relationships that aren't erotic? Think David and Jonathan. Think Jesus and the Apostle John. He writes, this is kind of his quest. He, he says, my question at root is how can I steward and sanctify my homosexual orientation in such a way that it can be a doorway to blessing and grace? What a profound way to think about one's orientation. You see, Hill is saying that um, uh, whether his orientation is good, bad, broken, whatever one wants to think about it, when submitted to God, and this is for all of us, straight, doesn't matter what our orientation, when submitted to God, God has a purpose to bless the body of Christ in a way that he couldn't have otherwise. It's meant for blessing the body of Christ. In a day and age where men struggle to develop meaningful relationships that build up society, God is using men like Wesley Hill and others in the context of spiritual friendship and gospel partnership to help men have real and meaningful relationships without shame. Now, 10% of us probably know how to do this. The other 90% of us struggle with this. I think Paul's a part of that 10% in the way that he's writing this letter, you can tell. He was a confident man and yet spoke with honesty and tenderness. He was soft, but he was also secure. Uh, his singleness, his celibacy, his friendship with men like Timothy and Silas show us the lost art of friendship, in particular friendship among men. And I, I really believe that in light of this passage that God will complete this work of gospel friendship in us, especially us. And I, you know, I, I say men, and I don't want to be gender specific so much about this, but I know in particular it is a struggle that many of us have. And it's not just gender stereotyping. There is a spiritual reality that works against relationship uh, among men. Um, that's not me being too gender specific, am I? I just feel like there is a spiritual reality that works against uh, men having real relationships. Um, and for those of us who that resonates with, I think this passage and the theme of your church, authentic community, challenges us to make today the day that I press into relationships. Make the day. Make today that day. We shouldn't let shame or feeling uncomfortable hold us back from spiritual friendships. Paul says this in verses 8 through 9. He writes this. He says that, For God is my witness how, check out this language, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you all. You feel like he's from Texas or something. There's a lot of you alls in here. I, I yearn for y'all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I mean, who, let's be honest. Who talks like this? Like, who says, I, I yearn for you all with affection? Hey, Michael, 
I just want to let you know, I, I yearn for you this week with all affection, right? Like, who does this? Uh, now, here's the reality. 99% of us in this room want this kind of relationship, but just, we just don't know how to do it. So we come to church, and you're, you know, you're, you're it's too, you know, you don't, you don't know how to, you don't know how to, like, initiate it, and people come to church, and they don't know how to initiate it, and so you all come to church together for an hour and a half, and nobody knows how to initiate the yearning of all affections of the Christ Jesus, and so you walk away, you just say, man, this church is kind of cold, right? Or this church doesn't have community, or whatever, you know, whatever sometimes we uh, accuse churches of having. But the reality is that we look, we look at each other, we really want this, and so, but, you know, it's a really weird and awkward thing, and maybe it's because we're socially awkward, I don't know. I mean, it could be that we're socially awkward, but a part of it could also be that we're, maybe we're just sinners and we fear rejection. Could that possibly be it? That we just fear rejection, that if we were to say to people, you know, I really need uh, this level. And I'll be honest with you, I've had some people come up and say that to me, that I really need accountability in my life. And, you know, my sinful, depraved mind, you know what that says? Well, you know what I hear whenever somebody says that? I hear them saying, I need to cling to you. <laughs> or I need to be in a clinging relationship with you. And I know that's, that tends to be how we feel when, when, when people approach us about relationships and friendships. But there's a sense in which the longing and the yearning is, is a shadow of the real thing that God has put in our hearts to want with and for one another. But if the gospel says that in Christ Jesus you are completely accepted by God, then you shouldn't fear the rejection that comes by expecting that from others and expecting that for others. That, that fear of rejection, that fear of being denied friendship should shield us from trying because in Christ, we already have it all. To a certain degree, we already have it all. Uh, those of us who think it's weird to gather adults and ask them to be friends, uh, think that because, they think that because deep down inside, uh, their friendships are best oriented around affinity or proximity or experience. But it's probably not the gospel. Uh, they think good friends have to have a lot of great things in common or live close by to each other or be the same kind of people, but that's not necessarily gospel partnership. Notice that Paul doesn't say, I yearn for you all with the affection of commonality and personal preference in shared culture. He didn't say that. He says it's the affection of Christ. The word affection here is a very interesting word because uh, the literal translation is, I, I yearn for you with the bowels that Christ has, all right? So, like, you know, Jesus' bowels, like, that's how I yearn for you. It's the way that Jesus would be passionate about you. That's how I yearn for you. We're friends because of the gospel. The gospel gets rid of any kind of shame, any kind of uncomfortable feelings between people. Not that there is an awkwardness when you're trying to break the ice of being a long-term friend. And I'm also not advocating that you can force these things to happen there's a fine line between being organic but also being an initiative taker. Uh, but the reality is this, that the pattern of gospel partnership is different people being united by the cross. This is the underlying theological foundation for multi-ethnic congregations, by the way. It is the different people being united, the sameness, the same same is not affinity, not location, but it's Jesus in the cross. Love doesn't abound more in sameness. It abounds more in diversity and difference. If you yearn for friendship in your own strength, all your friends look like you. If you yearn for friendship in Christ Jesus, you'll have friends you never thought you'd have. Something interesting about the Philippian church, if you read in Acts chapter 16, you can read about the origins of this church. That the, the, the first founders, or the people that became the foundational uh, demographic for the church in Philippi was number one, Lydia, a businesswoman. Uh, number two, um, a, a little girl who was demon-possessed that was rescued from a traffic situation. And then number three, a blue-collared uh, jail uh, um, attendant, a jail uh, guard, a, uh, someone who was guarding the jail cell. These were the first three individuals uh, who came to Jesus. Not a whole lot in common. And yet, this was the foundation of the Philippians church that started in the home of this businesswoman named Lydia. And just like Jesus, who had such a diverse group of friends, he was actually accused and murdered for being called friends of sinners. This is the reality of the gospel. When it permeates our hearts, diversity explodes from in the midst of us. 
what I want to do in the next five minutes, because I'm like T.D. Jakes. I'm just like, yeah, like I'm, I'm sweating while I'm preaching. Uh, get ready, get ready, get ready. Um, so, <laughs> um, at the risk of being a bit too practical and a, a little bit borderline cheesy, but I think it's helpful to, to be cheesy sometimes. What I want to do is I want to give us uh, five really quick uh, levels of investing in spiritual friendship. Because I don't want you to walk away feeling like, well, how do we do this? I'm just, this is just kind of me just talking to a church, seeing how it's been done before. Probably how you're already doing it uh, to a very large degree already in this church. I want to give you five uh, levels of investing in spiritual friendship uh, as you build towards a partnership in the gospel. And level zero is this. Uh, I know this is pretty basic. This is level zero. That's why it's not level one. It's level zero. It's just shaking someone's hand, introducing yourself, and saying hi to them. Now, here's the thing. Four weeks in a row, all right? Here's the trick about churches, younger churches, churches in the city. Um, we tend to be a bit friendly on the first time we see a visitor because you're really excited. And maybe the second week you acknowledge them. But just like everybody else, by the time you're third week, you assume that they're sticking around and they're, they're going to be okay. And they're still struggling to find community, but you've assumed that they've become one of you. And the reality is this, is that it takes at least three to six months for somebody to begin to feel like some communities come around them. And so, you know, this is, again, a very a bit kind of you know, overly pragmatic, but when I say four weeks in a row, what I mean to say is that keep pressing into relationships of those that are newer in the church and that you have to be initi the initiative taker. Once they start serving, it doesn't mean that they feel fully immersed and plugged in, right? And so uh, this is something that, you know, this is, just, this is level zero stuff. Like, you don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to have a leadership training class for this. You know, I know you do greetings every week, but in that, you know, if the person you saw last week is sitting across the room, there's enough time to get across the room, give them a hug. Hey, I'm glad to see you back here again. Really excited you're here, right? Really basic. That's why that's level zero, not even level one. Level one. Let's look at level one. Again, you probably do this already. Host meals regularly at your place for one another and for strangers. Now, I know you live in Chicago. I know you live in a, a duplex. Uh, I know you don't have much room. I know your IKEA furniture only seats two. Uh, <clears throat> but host regular meals <clears throat> at your place. Why not, why not Starbucks? Why not, <clears throat> you know, uh, Giordano's, you know, whatever your favorite place. Um, I went to Mahalo the other day in um, uh, Wicker Park because everybody's been raving to me about Mahalo. Anybody been Mahalo before? Okay, all right. I should have just made ramen at home. I'm sorry if you don't like, okay, but <clears throat> come to my house. I'll make you ramen, all right? But here's, here's how you can kick, kick that up a notch. If you're in the midst of believers, and even if you have a few non-believers there, as you take a meal, you can even take communion together. I talk about evangelism at your, your, your table. And really casually, you know, the reality is when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they're having communion. It's not in a worship setting like this, okay? <clears throat> Paul says that every time you get together for a meal, that's what Paul actually says, whenever you get together for meals, remember Jesus. That's what he's saying. And so whenever you have a meal, even within your own family, you just say, hey, every, every time, let's take a pause and let's just remember that this, 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 uh, this buncha or what's your favorite, uh, this gyro or whatever it is that you're having for this pizza. Um, hopefully that's not too um, sacrilegious. But this pizza that we're having, is, as we slice it up, it's almost like Jesus' body being broken for us. And I won't say what the marinara sauce represents, but, uh, but some, you know, to that effect, you, you get to celebrate Jesus every time you have a meal. And uh, that's how you can do it uh, together. Because you're taking not just the food together, but you're taking in spiritual nourishment when you celebrate communion each time. Level two, take a spiritual retreat together. Let's take a weekend away. Some, you know, I know sometimes you want to get away from people. Uh, take two or three people with you. Rent out a lodge. Go on an intentional spiritual retreat. Go on a prayer retreat. You don't, you don't need church leaders to, you know, uh, sign off on this. At least I don't think, hopefully not this church. Um, but just take some time to get away. Maybe it's doing a silent retreat. Maybe it's doing a fasting prayer retreat, praying for one another, praying for breakthrough, praying for miracles, praying for that child that a couple wants in your church, uh, taking some intentional time to say, we're going to build into each other's lives. And again, it doesn't have to be really awkward where you've got this laid out plan, but you're taking intentional time away not to just go swimming, and you can do swimming too, but 
you're taking time away to really invest in one another and to enjoy the presence of what it means to be in gospel community together. Level three, allow someone to lovingly correct you. That requires you to actually equip yourself with the gospel because when somebody comes to you and they have a word of correction for you, you have to be able to receive that uh, in a way that it doesn't break your spirit but build your spirit. But in the same way, be bold enough to lovingly correct someone else. This is the Christian act of preaching the gospel to each other. Now that you're believers, when you preach the gospel to each other, it's not just to convince you of your salvation, but it's to build yourself. It's, it's, it's to purge yourself of the things that aren't like Christ. This is what it means to preach the gospel to one another, lovingly correct each other. Level four is make someone godparent of your child. Now, I would recommend that that person not be three weeks into the church, uh, four weeks into the church. But as you're building relationships and you feel like you have high levels of community, uh, making somebody godparent your child or something similar to this, right? You, you, I hope you know I'm just giving you like an example of the depths of relationships. Um, give them the pr privilege of praying and supporting your child in their faith for the rest of their life. That's the key here. Oh, we're, we're now tied for the rest of our lives. It's not like, you know, you, you, you came to Chicago for work and then you left to, to California. Now I've got to find another godparent for my child. It's not like that. What you're trying to do is you're building a mechanism into your relationships that ensures long-lasting relationships, right? And so what is that? You know, being a godparent to one of your children could be that. Uh, I don't know if you do that, but that could be a possibility or things like that. And then lastly, and then we'll really actually spend a lot of time talking about this next week, is just being on mission together. This is the highest level of spiritual friendship. Here's the ultimate reason why gospel partnership trumps any other kind of friendship that we have. Our spiritual friendship is an extension of God inviting others into the family. So you have to be a family in order for you to be able to, to exhibit that. <clears throat> One of the best ways to build friendship is to say that, no, the reason why we are yoked together in Jesus' name is so that we can reach more people in, in, in Jesus, is so that we can be agents of justice, agents of change in our community. I know that's a high value. That's where we're going next week. But I just want to remind you that it's not just about doing the work or getting the work done. It's about being friends on mission, enjoying life together as you're accomplishing the purposes of God together. The only way to really escape spiritual loneliness and the performance trap of social cliques is to have partnerships with friends who will accept you the way that you are in Christ and then love you enough to keep you on track with God's purposes. That's gospel partnership. That's how Jesus treated you when he died on the cross, and that's how he wants to make friends out of us, and that's how he wants us to make friends. I'm going to invite you. Let me just ask you to stand up, and I want to pray for us and pray for uh, the church as we continue to engage uh, in gospel partnership. And if you're okay, I want to ask you to just to put out your hand like this, like you're receiving something. If you're someone who uh, is dealing with loneliness, has dealt with loneliness, uh, it is a chronic thought pattern for you. It's a chronic feeling. I want to release you in Jesus' name from this desperation that it'll always be this way or feel this way, that God is now, even now, in the midst of changing not just your mindset but your situation. That you didn't show up here, uh, show up to the city, show up in the circumstance because of just happenstance, but there's intentionality built into the season of your life. Some days you press in deeper to Christ because you have no one else. And some days uh, Christ is initiating you to be uh, a friend maker so where you feel lonely I want to replace that thought and that feeling uh, with this uh, understanding of opportunity with this understanding of uh, intentionality for those of us who call Newcom your home and uh, maybe you've taken it for granted that God's given you an authentic community maybe you look at the leaders and you look at some of the other people and um, it's been 15 years since you've been here and you're wondering, uh, can you go any deeper? 
And I just want to affirm, yeah, there's so much more. It doesn't stop where you're at. That it goes even deeper. And that there's even more ready uh, and available for you. And that uh, the community that you've built so far has made a tremendous impact. So thank you. There's a culture that's being formed today, though, that's different. That's going to dictate the culture 10 years from now. And I just pray that as mothers and fathers of this church, that you would receive, and not just not be recipients and initiators, but you would be, in a sense, a grandparent in this church where you're mentoring the next generation and being culture makers at Newcom. And so I release you of any burden that, of burnout or tiredness, and that you would see the opportunity to facilitate and organize communities uh, in this beautiful community in Logan Square. And then lastly, for those of us who have come here and uh, being a part of Christian community has been the furthest thing in your mind, uh, that following after God is the furthest thing away from your mind, can I just say this, that um, you're not the first person to be there and you're not the last. And I'm going to present an opportunity this morning today that if you trust in uh, Jesus, who's been labeled the friend of sinners, that his gentleness, yet his security, his softness, yet his um, firmness with us in molding our lives can make a tremendous impact in you. That when he died on the cross, that it was for you as well. To give you a victory that you've been trying to find for yourself that you can't create on your own. It's available to you this morning. Would you just trust in him? Trust in the life that he's given for you and the life that he has reserved waiting for you. And if that's you, you can just acknowledge in your heart and with your lips, I trust in you, Jesus, this morning. Come into my life. I want the friendship that you have waiting for me. So, Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the work that you're doing in this season and this church is going through a season of just resting and waiting. And thank you that, Lord, you're in the midst of it. And so we thank you and we bless your name. It's in Jesus' name we gather and we say this. Amen.
us as we uh, head off for this afternoon. Lord, I pray that even maybe in this next 30 minutes of coffee hour, uh, that you would bring us deeper into uh, what you have planned for us. Um, God, we just say yes to the community that you're forming here, to the degree that you want to use us to do that. We just say yes to that. So bless the word that we've listened, the songs that we've been enriched by, and let us rise as your community uh, in this city for gospel testimony and also for the joy that you set before us in Christ Jesus. So I bless you to go in that with the favor of the Lord. Amen.